You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Good morning, good morning, this Saturday morning. It is a beautiful end of June, June 26th. We're coming down to home stretch. This month blew by. I'm telling you, I can remember like when it was first starting off, and I'm like, are you kidding me? We're headed into July. I feel like time is moving at a warp speed right now. But it's a gorgeous, gorgeous June day here in, in the southeastern part of the United States, and I hope you're having a blessed day, whatever the weather is where you are. But I'm excited about today's show and our guests who we'll be introducing to you shortly. But before I do that, I just want to drop this thought, and this is an, an anonymous quote. Don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. You know, but you're tired along the way. You guys got a lot of things going on in life in this world, but don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. And another thing I want to uh, uh, I, I always ask you, do you, if you love mystery and you value relationships, I mean, you honestly do, and you see how complicated they are. There's a complicated father-son relationship in this story, and I think this is a story that I really think should be told. And there is a I'm not I'm not like a romantic, but there is a soulmate. These people, these two these two people belong together. Raymond and Brenda. Raymond is on his way to the Olympics, and he also is an academic standout. But his father and he have a very complicated relationship. Then there are these five, these four guys. There's all of them five friends together, including Raymond. That he meets in college when he goes to school on a scholarship in Pennsylvania. Their friendship lasts. A lifetime, but one of them there's a there's a there's a murder Raymond witness, and one of his friends is involved. He doesn't know it when he first meets this friend. That comes to to be revealed later in the story. If you value relationships and you like a good page turning mystery, I do encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me and get an ebook or in print. I really encourage you to do that right. Now, and now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Sandra Warren. And Sandra grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And although she didn't, she didn't like to write in school. She went on to become a prolific writer. In fact, Sandra has written several books. She has also had her writing published in magazines, newspapers, journals. CDs and DVDs. She considers herself to be a mountain woman. Among the books that Sandra Warren has written, there's She Started It All, We Bought a w, WW2 Bomber, The Blue Ridge Parkway, Obsessed by a Promise, and her latest work, which is based on the Orphan Train Movement. And we're going to ask her more about that doing her interview today. Please, please, please go check Miss Sandra Warren out online at, and it's spelled just the way it sounds, SandraWarren.com, S-A-N-D-R-A-W-A-R-R-E-N.com. And one more time, S-A-N-D-R-A-W-A-R-R-E-N.com, SandraWarren.com. We are absolutely honored to have her on, and I'm hope, I hope I'm picking up the right line. I hope I do. We we are so happy to have, I'm about to start asking my guests for their phone. 
<laughs> uh, we're so happy to have Sandra with us on off the shelf. I hope I brought her on the right line live with several people on our lines uh, today. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Sandra. Well, thank you, Denise. Uh, oh, I got it right. I got it right. Did you get it right? <laughs> oh, I'm like, okay, our lines are busy. So I, uh, people tune into Off the Shelf from all over the world. We're on so many different platforms. So I want to welcome you, and I'm so honored to have you join our long list of of author guests. We've, we've had New York Times bestselling authors, movie producers, and publicists, and editors, and now we have Miss Sandra Warren. Sandra, the first few questions I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest so our listeners can get a little backstory on our guests before I go right into the questions. So could you tell us to kick off today's show, Sandra, what was it like for you growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the only girl among three brothers? Well, um, I didn't know anything different, so um, it was it was tough in some aspects. Um, I have an older brother, and when I was very young, when I was six and he was seven, our father passed away. And so my mother was a widow for seven years, and then she remarried, and then I um, she had two more children. So my older brother and I were in our teenage years when um, the other two brothers were born. But that was okay. <laughs> um, we're all great friends uh, today, and um, it it was it was a little bit rough growing up with a single mom uh, back in the um, in the fifties, I guess it was. And um, but <clears throat> you know we managed, and uh, school became my life. I I love school, uh, but I never, ever imagined that my high school years would come back to be a part of my writing life, um, what should I say, 50 years later? Wow. (laughs) It's it's been a crazy journey. Oh, my goodness. Now, when you were a little girl, when you were a kid, what did you dream? What did you want to be when you grew up when you were a kid? I wanted to teach preschoolers. I loved little kids. I did a lot of babysitting, and I wanted to teach preschoolers. And at the time, um, I also wanted to go to college, and I discovered to get a home economics degree way back then, early childhood education was a part of that, uh, of home economics. But my advisor said, you know, what if, you get a degree in early childhood and you get out and you find it's really not what you want to do. So you should get a home economics education degree and then you'll get all of it. You'll get interior design, you'll get nutrition, you'll get sewing, and you'll get early childhood. So that's what I did. Now, why did you hate writing in school? you, You might be the first guest on Off the Shelf. Who 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 said that? Why why did you why didn't you like writing in school? Um, because you know it, it's taken me many years to analyze this, but I believe it was first of all I had very little self confidence, and um, I oh gosh, um, 
I think it was because I really thought, and I think many children today in school think this, if you get a lot of red marks on your paper that you're dumb and stupid. And so my papers always came back looking like a Christmas tree. And I didn't want anybody to see them. And, uh, you know, I would be the one that was hovered over my papers with my arm, and and I didn't want anybody to see what my grade was. because, And also way back then, they didn't grade on creativity. They graded uh, on punctuation. And I always had a difficult time with punctuation. Uh, you know what? So I believe I that's why I really, really hated it, because I didn't think I could write because no one ever told me I had great ideas. They only, you know, the teachers way back then um, were focused on uh, grammar and punctuation. You know, we, I take that back. We did have another guest. She said she didn't write for, for decades because her teacher just lit her paper up, and she thought she had done a good job, and she said, oh, my God, when she got those markings back and I think her teacher even told her she wasn't a very good writer that she she didn't write again for years and then she came back and you know she's now a novelist but so who or what Sandra so that you get this on your on your English paper and they didn't they didn't even you know tell you about your creativity but who or what inspired you to finally get on that path to to writing well there were several individuals the the first was my senior English uh, high school teacher. Um, I was a senior, and uh, at that time they had too many students in senior English and not enough kids in honors English. So they took the next tier and they put me up in the honors English, and I was terrified because I was with all the brains in the school, and I was terrified. But this teacher... I found out later, had gotten her master's from Harvard. And she would do things. The first day in class, she said something that would be radical today. She said, I'm going to, this first semester, I'm going to throw out grammar and punctuation because I'm going to teach you to write. And um, we had assignments like, uh, tonight go out and sit in your backyard and write for a half an hour, I want you to promise to sit there for a half an hour and write down every sound that you hear. And then when you'd come in the next day, she would say, okay, you can write a poem or you can write a story. It's your choice. And she did assignments like that. One time we had to dissect a pizza verbally. And um, partway through the class, year she announced to the class that I had finally broken through and um, and I started liking to write then I got to my freshman year in college and of course I got the worst professor for freshman English everyone said oh don't get Miss Clark and, um, and she announced everybody six grammatical errors and you go back to remedial high school English so I knew where I was headed, and I wrote my paper, came back looking like a Christmas tree, and there was a big see me on it. And she said, um, she said, now obviously you know where you should be going, but this paper is fabulous, and I want to keep you here, and I'm going to teach you to punctuate. 
And so those were two big influences on my life. But even so, I never thought of writing until I was in my 30s and had um, had a daughter who was an excellent artist. And a friend said to me, oh, you have to take her to Barbie Sargent. Barbie Sargent was a pro- prolific, um, probably the most prolific uh, greeting card uh, artist. She'd done over 10,000 cards for American Greetings and created Poppy Seed and um, Strawberry Shortcake. And at, at that time, she liked to talk to young artists and encourage them. So I took my daughter there, and, and at, the end of the thing, at the end of the meeting, she looked at me and she said, you should be writing children's books. And I was like, what? <laughs> and wow. um, so I went home and I, I wrote my, my first book. Oh, you know, so, what you know, people people kind of fell in my path that that got me to where I could even think about writing, but I had never thought about it before. In- interesting. That kind of segues into the, my next question. Uh, after, after you helped your daughter with her writing, you wrote "If I Were a Road." What is that book about? Well, um, "If I Were a Road" came out in 1980. And, by the way, it's still being sold and used in classrooms. Um, Mm -hmm. It was, um, I wanted to write things that would help kids think. And so the road book uh, has four different roads. Each one is a physical description, a job, and a feeling. So when you get to the end of the book, it says, um, if you were a road, what kind of road would you be? then the student would have to answer the question. These these are uh, the first three books, If I Were Road, If I Were Table, and The Great Bridge Lowering, were all designed for classroom use. And uh, so the student would have to answer. Now, if you were a teacher and you said, write a story, if I were a doctor, everyone could do that because they've been to doctors, they, they know what doctors do, they know where there are different kinds of doctors, some kids live with doctors. So they could write a story quite easily, but how do you write a story if you were a road? So the book shows the students through the four roads how to think like a road, so when it gets to the end, they have an idea of what to do. And then I found a company, uh, Good Apple, which is no longer um, in uh, – it, it was sold and resold and resold and renamed, and um, they did activity books for classroom use. and. They liked the idea, and so they wanted me to add, and I added uh, 32 pages, I think it is, of classroom activities based on um, four different types of creativity a teacher might want to zero in on. And um, so that's, that's, <laughs> that, that was my first book, and it was, it was really quite funny because when your friends know you're a writer and you have a book published, it's like, oh, my Sandy, my, my writer friend, and she'd introduce me to people, and they'd say, oh, you've written a book, are you published? That's the first thing people ask. And i go, well, yeah. And um, they'd say, well, tell us the title of your book. And it got to be funny. I would say, well, unless you're into some really deep philosophical thinking, you probably have never heard of it. And then you could see their esteem rise, and they'd say, well, tell us the name of it. And I'd say, if I were a road, and then they'd look at me like I was crazy. 
And then it would take about three or four seconds, and they'd say, seriously? And I'd go, <laughs> if I were a road is my first book. And um, and then it was like a light bulb would go on, and they go, oh, so what's your next book going to be? If I were a tree, if I were a doorknob, how about if I were a light bulb? And so I wrote If I Were Tables. Oh, okay. My goodness. I had fun with now, it. Now, your, your early books, again, If I Were a Road, If I Were a Table, and The the Great Bridge Lowering, they're still being used in schools, as you said, 38 years after yes. you wrote and published those books. How did you get them in the schools for our listeners who might themselves be authors who want to get their books in the schools? How did you do that, and why do you think the books are still sought after after all these years? Well, I had an educational publisher. That's how <laughs> that's how it got into schools. Now, the road is only sold as an uh, ebook right now. the The table they just brought out and uh, with new illustrations and everything two years ago. So that was uh, uh, the cover and the illustrations were changed to more updated illustrations, and the great bridge lowering has has been is the same book that it was when it came out in in uh in in the early 80s. So I wow. I think you know back then this, these books were unusual. They were on the cusp of the whole language where teachers were starting to focus more on creativity. And that's still a big thing today and it's also still um a uh, well, it's it's just really big uh, to get to get kids to think. You know, this is the whole thing. You uh, to try to challenge students to think differently, and I think that's why they've endured. I don't know. It surprised me. I didn't know I was creating something that was this long lasting. <laughs> I just, oh, I just wrote goodness. a book to help teachers do more creative things because my oldest daughter at the time uh, had entered school and my other two girls, and they were all gifted. My oldest daughter was highly gifted, and she was so bored in school, and I was trying to create something that would get kids, um, teachers, to feel more comfortable using creative materials. Oh, my, I mean, kudos to you. And you, you, you were paired up with the right publisher as well, it sounds like. Now, tell us what it was like, Sandra, working with actors and music engineers to bring Arlie the Alligator to life, and you did it in DVD and CD form. Were you involved in that process, or did they take your book and they do all the work to transform it into a DVD, and you you just saw the final, the final product, or were you involved all along the way? I was involved all along the way. This was another, uh, should I say, uh, self-published concept. Again, Arlie came out originally in 1991, and at that time, uh, books on tape were just becoming popular for adults, and they just started doing some for children. And so when I was trying to find a publisher, um, I got these wonderful stack of rejection letters that, that said things like, um, you know, beautiful story, uh, a wonderful cassette tape, because it was cassette tape, 
but and no publisher would pick it up. So we self-published it ourselves in a hardback form with a different illustrations. The music came from um, a chance meeting. I was taking a class, sat down next to a, a gal um, and um, named De- Deborah Bell Flager. And she asked me what I did, and I told her I wrote children's books. And she goes, oh, I write, I write advertising limericks, and I've always wanted to write for kids. And I said, well, I just finished a story about an alligator here, and it's, I'll send it to you. Well, it turns out, even though the class was over an hour away from my home, she lived a mile from my home. Now, you know, some things are a God thing. You know, that was yeah. a big God wink. And um, so I gave her the book. The, the manuscript, and she came out within two weeks with four really snappy, catchy, beautiful songs. And then she said, I remember I said, people fall in my lap. Then she said to me, oh, by the way, did I tell you I own my own recording studio? Now, wow. what are the chances of this? Yeah. And so um, I said, well, we have to record this. And I didn't want to just sit there and read the story. So I said, we've got to have actors and, and uh, you know, we've got to do sound effects. So I was involved right from the beginning. Uh, we hired a, a very talented high, uh, college theatrical uh, student who had gone to the high school in the town where I lived, and he became a Broadway actor, uh, Rex yep. Knock and Gust. And, um, okay. And uh, I was taking a class on doing voiceovers because uh, everyone always said, oh, you should be doing advertising with your voice. And, <laughs> and I met a, uh, a producer of commercials, and I uh, mentored under her. And she agreed to be the narrator. She thought it was wonderful, and she agreed to be the narrator. So we had two very talented people as as the main uh, the main uh, voices on this tape. And uh, we got a little boy to come in and and do the you know, hello, Mr. Alligator, what you doing? And uh, you know, and and I had to explain to him that. He's going to have to do it over and over and over and over. It's not because he's doing anything wrong. It's because we want to pick the one that's the best, because every time you say it, you say it a little bit differently, and that worked out well. Um, So we put the whole thing together. So then I had an audio tape and a manuscript, and that's what I sent to these publishers who said, the audio tape is wonderful, Um, but. And the but was nobody knew this character so they didn't want to. They couldn't. They didn't feel they could take a chance on an unknown character because they were doing Sesame Street um, uh, and some of the classics. So, mm-hmm. so we did it ourselves. And Good yes, for you. I was involved in every single thing except I didn't move the. I even sang back up. My husband sang back up on one of the songs, and and oh my goodness, we had so much fun with the. Um, with the sound effects. And, you know, um, let me just tell you quickly about one of the sound effects. Uh, Debbie was was the the songwriter and the one who was the recording studio. She was absolutely a perfectionist, and she kept trying to find a sound that would sound like 
the alligator walking through the sand. Now, you can barely hear it on the actual uh, playback, but we can hear it. And um, she couldn't find it and couldn't find it and couldn't find it. And I kept saying, Debbie, it's okay. We can use the rustling. We had a microphone hanging out the bedroom window, and one of us was walking back and forth in uh, dry leaves. No, that wasn't good enough. Um, One morning she was making coffee, and she put a measuring cup in a huge can of coffee, and she heard the sound she wanted. And so, so the coffee cup and the can of coffee and the coffee beans rattling as she put her measuring cup in became the sound of the alligator walking on the sand. It sounds like it was fun to make. You know, like if when you're writing a story or you're working on a play or, or a movie script or whatever it is, and it, you just enjoy it. You can feel it coming coming together, coming alive. It, that process is rewarding in itself, even while you're in the process of creating something. And, and so it sounds like you had a blast creating that the DVD, CD for Arlie the Alligator. Now, Sandra, as we start to talk about some of your other books and some of your other novels, why did you decide to expand your writing, similar to what Judy Bloom did after many years of writing her stories? Why did you decide to expand from writing children's books to writing adult novels? It didn't seem to me like it was a decision. The ideas came, and I was just crazy enough to follow them through and think that I could get them published. And that's pretty much it. Um, I will tell you the first adult novels I wrote were actually memoirs, two military memoirs of two gals that served in the, as nurses in the Persian Gulf War. And um, the one gal, Diane Kwiatkowski, she came to me because when she was voting, she was lamenting while she was waiting in line that she wanted her memoirs written and she couldn't find anybody to do it. And somebody in in a different town, somebody I don't know, said, you have to call Sandra Warren. And she told her where I lived. I lived in Ohio at the time. So she called me and I said, wait a minute, I write children's books. I I don't write adult books. I don't even know how to do this. And uh, she said, let me come talk to you. And she walked in, and we hit it off, and the rest is history. So I ended up writing her story. When duty called, even Grandma had to go because she was a grandmother. She was 47 years old, had uh, five kids and four grandchildren, and, um, and wanted to get her master's in nursing. And she... One of her colleagues said, you know, money's tight. Um, You ought to join the Army Reserve. And so she checked it out and decided to do it. And two months later, she was deployed to serve in the Persian Gulf. And um, so her story is kind of a how I survived story. And then there was another gal in her uh, troop who had a story to tell and, and Diana actually came to me and said, uh, there's another gal in our troop has a story to tell. Do you mind if she calls you? And that that became Hidden Casualties, Battles on the Home Front. And that story actually is the story that first made the military begin to look at what to do about 
children and single parents. Um, the Persian Gulf was the first time the military ever had problems with uh, <clears throat> people with their children. Before you were deployed, there's no question about it, you go. But there had been so many divorces by the 19, early 1990s that when it came time to go, there were all these legal battles with parents and kids and all of that. And um, this story actually is the one when you hear, even today on the news, there'll be an issue will come up. They'll say it stems back to uh, an issue, <clears throat> something that happened in um, during the Persian Gulf War, and that was this particular story, Hidden Casualties, Battles on the Home Front. And um, I had actually optioned that. I wrote a screenplay and optioned it as a movie. It was optioned two or three times and um, just missed getting picked up two or three times. So, you know, <clears throat> uh, it isn't anything until it's picked up. So, but... Uh, but it was optioned, so it, it's it's a really interesting story. And then I knew I could write adult books, so then whatever ideas came to me, I just went with them. You know, you sound like you just follow whatever you're in. In whatever happens, you have a you must have a good level of trust. You must have to just follow. You know, you get an idea or something happens, you follow it instead of saying no and fighting against it. And it seemed like your life kind of in this flow where you do that, and it's just a, 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 I mean, it's a blessing. What inspired you to write Obsessed by a Promise? Why did you, why that story? That story came about because I was working for a a public, educational publisher, a wonderful company called Synergetics. It's no longer in business, and I was traveling the country doing gifted conferences uh, in all the states, and one day uh, I opened a box of books. I was exhibiting at, you know, you go to the exhibit hall and I opened a box of books and it was a uh, kind of a history in a minute, <clears throat> tiny books that have uh, 13 pages. They had the basic facts, um, uh, some pictures, some resources, and some personal accounts. And the book on the top was called The Orphan Trains. Now, I had never heard of The Orphan Trains. Um, I call it the, the best-kept secret of how this country was, uh, how the West was populated. And um, the story, I sat right down when I was supposed to be working and read these 13 pages, and I couldn't get the concept out of my head that these children were picked up off the streets, put on a train, and sent to towns and stood up on a stage and people would come and pinch them and, and look at their legs and look at their teeth and say, I want that one. And wow. they, wouldn't even have to pay, they wouldn't even have to pay for them. All they'd have to do is, is sign a paper that said uh, the girls they had to keep till 18, they had to clothe, educate, and uh, take them to church. And the boys, they had to do that until they were 17. And... <clears throat> Uh, an agent would come back a year later and see if everybody was happy because they figured you couldn't you couldn't do much damage to a child in a year, right? Um, <laughs> and you know, I I was just fascinated with this. And when I started reading additional books, and I discovered that they often separated siblings, 
um, I uh, then I started to think about what would happen if one sibling got taken on the orphan train and the other was left behind. And um, so slowly, I, you might say I became obsessed with this story. So when my critique partners suggested obsessed <laughs> in the title, it made sense. And um, so the story is about two young boys. The oldest uh, promised his dying father he'd take care of his little brother. You see, um, so many Initially, as people were pouring into the United States, even in the early 1900s, some were indentured servants. They were put in, um, you know, tenement buildings, and even children worked 12-hour days. And so there was a lot of death, and there was a lot of uh, people thrown in debtor's prison. And in this story, uh, the mother had passed away on the boat over, and the father got sick and got thrown in jail, and so the boys were left alone. And uh, the last thing his father said was, take care of little Bo, take care of him. And so, um, uh, you know, the, the unusual thing that one reviewer said about this book was they were, they were fascinated because most of the stories are about the kids that were taken, not about the family left behind. And... So um, it took me many, many years to write this book. And, well, actually, I have to go back. This was originally written as a screenplay. And um, an independent producer picked it up. And she had said to me, you know, you're going to have to write the novel because if a studio, when when a studio, we don't say if, we always say when, when a studio picks this up, um, they're going to want a novel, and if you don't write it, they'll hire somebody to, to write it. So then I had to figure out how to write a novel. It's very different from writing a screenplay, from writing children's books, from writing anything. It's it's just so different to write a novel. And it took me a, many years <laughs> to figure it out. Well, there were many, many, many revisions of that story, but I'm very proud of what it is now. Wow. How did you learn? Oh, so you were at an event, you said, and you came across these books. What period in the United States did that happen in? And how did they? How would? How did? How did they know that a child was orphaned? Did the kids go somewhere and say they needed help? How would they know that the the family was orphaned? And and you just they went and stood on a stage and somebody said, "I want that one. I want that one." How long did that go on? That, I've never even well, heard of started, that. It started in um, 1856. Uh, a young preacher had had seen a, a little girl killed by a horse and carriage. Um, in, in the middle 1800s, so many immigrants were streaming into um, the, the United States that many, many children were left alone. And they estimated that around 33,000, it was estimated, we're living on the streets. Children taking care of children. I'm talking about, you know, six and seven year olds taking care of two year olds. Um, you know, living in alleys on the doorsteps. And uh, this pastor, young pastor, was so upset by this that he thought there's got to be a better way. So he came up with a. This is the beginning of the Children's Aid Society, by the way. And he uh, decided they would gather these children up 
they would put them in orphanages, clean them up, dress them up, and that was also the era of Go West Young Man, you know. They, they, and Go West Young Man at the time meant the Ohio Valley. That was West at the time. And so it started out uh, small, and as the country grew, it, the, the, um, the event became so successful uh, to send these children uh, they would just gather them off the streets, and they had no way of knowing whether they were uh, had parents or not. In fact, some of the children on the trains were coached to say, "I have no father, I have no mother." Um, some some parents were so destitute they would put the children in orphanages for the children to be held there for a limited period of time until they could get on their feet. And many parents, when they went back to get their children, their children were gone. Um, And so it was a wonderful idea, and uh, many, many wonderful experiences came out of this. This went on for 75 years. Wow. The The last train left New York in May of 1929. And oh that's where I set the story, is on the last train um, that that the young boy would eventually be put on the last train out of New York. Um, and his older brother will spend the next 50 years of his life basically putting, emotionally putting his life on hold for the next 50 years. Wow. And, oh, my um, God, what a story. Oh, my goodness, assessed by a promise. Wow, now that is a story, not only like historical fiction, something that, you know, you you can learn as you read and assess by a promise, but I've never even heard of a book like that. <laughs> it's like you've got like a very original, original it sounds like. I haven't heard of one like it. I'm sure there might be. You said you saw one, and that's how you learned about it, but... It's, like you said, it's a it's a good kept secret and went on for seventy five years. You never even hear about it. I that's the first just when you're on the show that I've ever heard about it. Now, can you introduce us to John Thomas J T Saunders? Is he the older brother? He's the, is he the brother searching for his younger brother in the story? What's what's driving what's driving J T? Um. <clears throat> In my mind, all of my characters and all of my books have an element of giftedness to them. And I was a, a parent advocate for gifted children because of my children and because of the first books I wrote for, for well, I guess I still am. And so I knew that there are 11-year-old children that become um, – their integrity tells them if if they're given a job to do, they're going to do it. And something as important as taking care of his little brother, he would never be able to let go of it until he finds his little brother. And um, so uh, that, in my mind, was logical to me. And all the things that happened to him along the way, how he becomes a, a you know, a, a a very wealthy young man, and all the things, how as a young boy he helps the grocer uh, change the way he organizes his shop um, and and lines up his cans. That, to me, is a logical thing that a young, gifted child could do and would do, 
at 11 years of age. And so um, the motivation for him to not give up, to me, was something that would have been innate to this young boy. So he's a, he, is he 11? So when he, He's when, 11, yes, and his little now brother Bo is parents, four years old. Oh, Bo is four. So their, their parents pass away? Or, or uh, is it that they you said financially destitute? They put them in the orphanage, or their parents? No, passed no, they away? did not. They did, they did not do that. Um, their mother died on the boat coming over, and the father was working long hours, and the boys were pretty much alone. And the father got into debt, and the police came and dragged dragged their father out of the house, out of the tenement building and put him in jail, and in jail he becomes very ill and he passes away. And so the young boys are left alone. Um, and, so the and that's how they become homeless, because the they can't pay the bill for the apartment and they can't fix the door that the police broke down. I don't want to tell too much of the story. No, 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 no. Now, but there's, but there's at the end of the story... Yeah. They're eleven and four at the beginning. How old are they when the story ends? How old are JT and Bo at the end of the story? Well, JT is in his sixties, early sixties. Oh, okay. So okay. Be eleven plus fifty years. Oh, oh, be six, oh okay. So okay, fifty years. How much, Sandra? This story it sounds so fascinating to me. How much research did you do for something that, like you never hear talked about? How much research did you do on this orphan train before you sat down and actually started writing the book? Well, I read uh, quite a few books on the about the orphan train, and then I looked at uh, the depression because it goes through 1929, it starts in May, and the depression hit in, uh, or the um, stock market failed in uh, October. And so I, I, I looked up information about what that era was like and what the grocery stores were like. And, um, you know, it just pieces parts. I would start writing and say, ooh, I better check this out. And so then I'd go check it out. I often do things in the reverse. You know, I was a student who would write the outline after I wrote the story. <laughs> and so um, um, I I have always believed just get the story down. Write what you want to write. Get it out. And then worry about checking things out. And, and now, and that's not probably not the best advice for someone writing historical fiction because the uh, the thing about historical fiction is the historical facts need to be correct, but everything else around it can change. And so I did a lot of research um, on the orphan train and what what was put on the trains, what the what the nuns or the agents took with them, um, that kind of thing. Oh my God, the story is so fascinating. Are there plans? To turn the story into a book series, if you if you haven't already done so, have you considered doing it? I could see where this could be a book series. You know, a couple 
That has been suggested, but it hasn't hit me where it could go from here. Um, if it hits me, I'll do it. <laughs> I I haven't I haven't got any ideas of where, you know, how that could come about. Um, I have revised the screenplay because the after writing the novel, the novel is so much richer than the screenplay. So I have revised the screenplay, and I, I do plan to put that out there again and see see what we can come up with. Um, you know, see if I can get somebody to bite. Uh, we'll see. Everything happens okay. in due time. I, I feel so led to do what I do, and it's just something that comes from God, I guess. Um, that's the only way I can describe it. Um, when I have a problem, you know, if I say a little prayer or whatever, I don't get an immediate answer, but somewhere down the line, uh, somebody drops in my, drops, <laughs> drops in front of me, and, um, and I go with it. So, yeah. And you seem to be aware or alert enough to see to see when that's happening, because a lot of times we get so busy, we just miss it. We just miss it, yeah. and we we miss it, and, that, and then that's why things might not seem like we, they're flowing. But you seem to be alert or aware enough to spot it and to know when to go with it. Can you tell us, Sandra, about the work that you do? You, you spoke about this a little, uh, uh, just a, touched on it a little bit earlier in the, in the interview, but can you tell us about the work that you do with and for gifted children and any any advice? Oh, I'll, let me just um, let me just stop with that one, and then I, I'll ask you the second question later. But can you tell us about the work that you do with and for gifted children? Well, I I don't actively do anything right now. Um, I was more of a parent advocate who gained greater respect once I started writing, and um, I did. You know, the the road, the table, and the bridge were written to teach children to think, and that all tied in with gifted education. And so I did workshops all over the country, and I helped start uh, uh, quite a few uh, parent organizations. I feel that uh, it's really important for parents to understand uh, what teachers go through and what limitations teachers have and vice versa. In fact, I have a little book that's with um, uh, Royal Fireworks Press called Parent Guide. One, It's a flip book. One side is Parent's Guide to Teachers of the Gifted, and the other side is Teachers of the Gifted's Guide to Parents. And um, it's all the things that parents don't understand about education. I mean, they think, first of all, teachers are trained, and they're not trained to teach gifted kids. It's a whole different way to learn. And um, and even when they are, they have tremendous limitations put on them by the school system, the administration, um, the principal. And um, I did a keynote once doing using this book and using the two sides, and I asked teachers to raise their hand if they would change the program and do more for gifted kids if they could. And all the hands went up. There were 800 people in the audience. And um, I, you know, parents think teachers can do 
whatever they want in the classroom, and they can't. They're they're really held down to a lot of uh, limitations, even when they're trained and even when they, they want to do more. They just can't. And teachers need to understand it's 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 very difficult raising gifted kids. And, um, you know, and, and people think that you're – you're sitting home. Uh, when I when I did uh, a parent, uh, when I talked to parent groups, I would say first of all, I want to thank you all for coming here tonight and giving up your time cramming information down your children's throats. You know, people think that um, there are there are parents like that. We have to admit in everything in sports and everywhere else. But most parents are saying, put that book down, go out and play. Don't ask me another question. When you get to school, they'll have the answers. So the kids come to school expecting answers, and, you know, some of these little guys get to kindergarten, and they're learning red stand up, blue sit down. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not always – it's nothing like you think until you get into it. Mm. But, are there any – there are signs for parents uh, that the parents can look out for that their child might be gifted? It, and it could be an arts or a sign – Science or just are there any signs that a child is gifted? Because one thing I I, I will say, uh, I think when a child is is advanced in some level, you you can get bored with school. I mean, and then and then if you're not careful, you could say if if you don't the child doesn't have the right options, you could say then now the child's a bad kid. But they're not. They they were so bored with the school. They were so beyond what's being taught in class. That is boring to them. So, are there any yeah. signs though that for parents to look for that their kids are gifted? And how how can a parent, if a child's going to a regular school, your kids bored? That they're like light years ahead of what the teachers cover. Well, I think the important thing is parents have to first of all become knowledgeable, and they can't. You know, the only reason I had success with getting services for my girls was that I went in and, and, and talked about, the, the uh, you know, my daughters are not the only ones. There are others in this school. And um, uh, I would say that if they just Google um, signs of giftedness, uh, you know, Google it, and you'll get all kinds of things. But, you know, early vocabulary, um, uh not necessarily early talking, but it could be early talking. Uh, my oldest started talking when she was six months old, and wow. you know, I felt like I was—I did everything right. I was such a good mother. Boy, was I humbled along the way. But um, <laughs> you know, um, but sometimes gifted kids don't talk because they're getting all the information they they need, and um, if they can point to something and you say, oh, sure, you want that chocolate chip cookie? Why should they have to say anything? You know, they, um, so there are many, many signs, um, the, the, the types of questions they ask. Um, I'm, I'm sort of blanking out here because I didn't expect to talk about giftedness, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, and, um, uh, but you learn, I think if somebody you really wants to know the symptoms, plus also every state, most states, I believe, still have an associate, uh, a, um, a, should have a gifted coordinator so they could check with their state school 
uh, school administration and also check with their state to see if their state has a gifted organization. Um, most states have an organization, and um, that's where you meet other parents. That's where you meet teachers, and uh, in that you can go to these conferences, and that's where you begin to learn. Um, so I would Google your state, you know, Ohio Gifted Association has been around for years. North Carolina has a gifted association. Iowa, I've been to um, Arkansas, Texas, California, uh, Indiana, um, Wisconsin. Uh, most states have a gifted association, which would be members would be parents and teachers. Uh, you know, thank you for sharing that. I I think it's important, and I've heard I've heard other people in academia who done very well themselves. A woman I used to work with at the College of New Jersey, and she was one of the youngest to graduate, and I forget her degree, but it was a, a, a complicated degree. She was one of the youngest to graduate and with honors, and now she's an administrator there. But she said it's so important because those kids can fall through a gap, and then they get uh, identified as a bad kid. But no, other things that might interest another child, they're so far ahead. They are so far ahead. I just heard about a little girl. I forget the group is it. I want to say Mensa or something. Where yes, these are yes. extremely. I mean, we're talking genius, genius kids. And so you cannot. You're not going to put a genius kid in a regular classroom. No, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. So she's one of. And I forget how old she might be. Like seven. And the things at her age that she can do that some people don't even do in college. So you, right. you, there's no way you can put this kid in a regular second, third grade class. It won't work. My nephew, I have a nephew who they said we could put him in with the other, it was a, I think three or four-year-olds when he plays, but he cannot, they say he's too far along. So he can, he has to be in with kids who are like three years older than him when it comes to the the instruction. They say because he's too advanced. And, and it, it just... He can play with kids his age, but he has to learn with kids who are like three years older than him. So you, yes. you know, so I think a lot of instructors, some do know, these kids advance, so we can't put them. They'll be bored. They'll be bored. So yep. they're. Uh, so as we come down to the last few minutes of the day's show, and I've so enjoyed having you on, Sandra. So enjoy. What writing process do you follow? You say you just get the story down. You've done screenplays. You've done novels, children's books. You've worked with a DVD and a CD. Do you do you really just sit down, regardless of the format you're writing, and you just start writing, or do you do character sketches? Do you do you actually see the scene unfolding? Because you do a lot of, uh, like, when they get your stories into a movie, do you actually see the story unfolding? What is the writing process you follow as you're creating a, a book? <laughs> um. I pretty much go with how I feel on that particular day. All, all the other thing, character sketches and all of that, that's too left brain for me. I'm a right brain, loosey goosey, creative type. So, <clears throat> but um, but if, if I could um, if I could just talk about one more book, uh, I'd appreciate it very much. And sure. when I said things, when I said things fall in my lap, um, I I got a message from a high school friend um, when, I, when I was growing up at South High School in Greater Rapids, Michigan there was a big bomber on the wall and, and 
you know, none of us paid any attention to it, a B-17 bomber. And it turns out that the students in 1943 took part in the Biobomber program and in eight weeks' time raised over $375,000 selling war bonds and war stamps, and they bought a, a World War II bomber. They were able to name it. They named it the Spirit of South High. And... um they had a big dedication ceremony. It was flown into Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it flew off, and they never knew what happened to it. And uh, in 2015, one of my high school friends, who was a veteran, called me, and he said, how close do you live to Meadows of Dan, Virginia? And I said, I don't know. I don't know where it is because I live in North Carolina. And I looked on the map, and I'm less than three hours away. And he said, well, I found the bomber that everyone's been looking for for 70 years and it crashed in meadows of dan and that was you know it was so close to me i had to investigate it and then this story got really crazy because this tiny town of meadows of dan virginia the historical society had no record of this crash and uh not only that it crashed on the blue ridge parkway near the most photographed spot on the blue ridge parkway neighbor's <laughs> mill it circled the mill twice and came down behind it. Now, what are the chances of all these weird things happening? And so um, I had to go on the radio and uh, write to the local newspapers and say, does anybody remember this crash? And people came out of the woodwork. Wow. And, um, and I even found the captain of the plane. He was 99 years old at the oh, time. My goodness. And he was sharp as a tack. He wrote a a forward for the book that is filled with humor. It's just wonderful. And he gave me all the ins and outs about what was going on in the cockpit and that uh, when the bomber came down. Um, I met the, the, some of the people who rescued the crew, and um, it, it just mushroomed and resulted in actually two historical markers have been placed, one at the high school in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and one at Mabry's Mill um, in, uh, in the most photographed spot on the Blue Ridge Parkway. And, I mean, what are the chances of something as crazy as this? And the other thing that you need to know about this school very quickly, because I'm running out of time, is it closed in 1968. And the uh, alumni, the varsity club still meets. The alumni get together once a month. 60, 70 people get together at a donut shop. Um, it's a big donut shop. Um, <laughs> once a month to, to gather the alumni of this school. This school was not a wealthy school. It was a, in a poor section of Grand Rapids, and it was all factory workers and families. It was well integrated. And um, it, it's just I'm so proud to have been a part of that school and a part of bringing this story forward. Uh, even though it's a story about what kids did, I decided to write a historical fiction version um, for, for middle grade students. And I think together these two books make a wonderful uh, lesson in writing for uh, junior high or high school kids in how an author takes facts, the facts from a real story, and twists them and turns them into historical fiction. Um, because when she started it all, the the boy is assigned, the boy follows um, 
they both follow the journey that I had uh, was, you know, trying to find out what happened to the bomber because the town didn't even remember this huge plane coming down. And uh, the boy follows the, the Grand Rapids story. So um, I'm, I'm just really proud. And talk about a book falling in your lap. Now, that was a God thing. How could I say no when this bomber's been missing for 70 years, we find it less than three hours from where I live. I had to write this story. Wow. I know you have you have one, and we didn't uh, – uh, one of your books is is titled, and I'm, I'm going back through my questions. We bought a, war, a WW2 bomber. Uh, World so War II bomber. Yes, yes. Can you tell us quickly where off-the-shelf listeners can get a copy of your books? Well, um, I would say I'm a big proponent of your independent bookstore. Go to your local independent bookstore and request that they order it. Or, of course, there's always the big A, Amazon. Um, (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Called the big A. Okay. (laughs) That's a new one. Okay, so we all what a pleasure. You have just been an absolute joy. We have had the pleasure of having. Author Sandra Warren here with us. Some of her books, she started it all. We bought a World War II bomber, the Blue Ridge Parkway. She just touched on that. Obsessed by and obsessed by promise. And her orphan train. Oh, my goodness, that's by promise. If you came in midstream or late on the interview and you heard signs and you're like, oh, I missed it, no worries. Once the show finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to it in its entirety and share it. With with people, whether there's a school teacher or a parent or anybody who loves books, from she's covering it from the young ages all the way up to adult, and and her, all her stories sound so interesting. As you talk about your stories, when you for you you just talking about your story, Sandra, can help you move so many copies of your books. You just the way you talk about your stories makes me like I gotta go get this book. That obsessed by a promise. Oh my goodness. So, and, and I encourage you to visit Sandra Warren online at SandraWarren.com, S-A-N-D-R-A-W-A-R-R-E-N.com, SandraWarren.com. Thank you so much for being here with us, Sandra. You are just an absolute delight, just such a delight. And to join a long list of guests we've had on here on Off the Shelf for 16 years, it's just a, a blessing to have you on. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and wish you much success. To our listeners, as I always tell you, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sandra, I'll shoot you an email with a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye for now. Thank you, thank you, thank you to you. I enjoyed it. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.